You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer and secretary for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today is December 10th, 2023, and this is episode 255 of Lighthearted. In a couple of minutes, we'll listen to part one of a two-part interview with Sally Snowman, who is about to retire as the Keeper of Boston Light after 20 years. And as many listeners probably know, she's also the last official keeper still employed by the federal government. So her retirement really is the end of an era. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about Sally in a minute, but how's your holiday season going, Cindy? Oh, I've actually been quite busy with this and that lately, so I'm almost ready now to, to start prepping for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Charlotte, my wife and I have actually seen two different versions of the Nutcracker <laughs> Ballet in the last week, both of them in Kittery, Maine, both great. Oh, yeah. that's really cool. I love the Nutcracker. So there's something I feel we need to mention before we go to our interview. I'm very sorry to report that there was a suicide attempt at St. Augustine Lighthouse in Florida. Sadly, this is something that's happened at a few different lighthouses over the years. I just want to say there's always help available when someone is feeling overwhelmed or suicidal. For one thing, there's a suicide and crisis lifeline you can reach by calling 988 or reach out to a friend or family member. Things can seem hopeless, but there's always support available. Our hearts go out to everyone affected, including the staff and volunteers of St. Augustine Lighthouse and their visitors. Absolutely. So, Cindy, please help me tell everyone about today's guests. In 2003, the active duty Coast Guard personnel that had been assigned to Boston Light on Little Brewster Island, America's oldest light station, were reassigned to meet the needs of Homeland Security. Sally Snowman was named the new keeper. She became the first woman keeper in Boston Light's long history, which dates back to 1716. Sally was born into a boating family in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and her parents often took her to the islands of Boston Harbor. Sally is a longtime volunteer for the Coast Guard Auxiliary. She also has two PhDs, one in neurolinguistics and one in metaphysics. She has worked as a learning disability specialist and as a professor at Curry College. Sally and her husband, Jay Thompson, have written two books, Boston Light, A Historical Perspective, published in 1999, and a book on Boston Light for Arcadia Publishing's Images of America series in 2016. Sally also wrote a book called Sammy, the Boston Lighthouse Dog, and I have a signed copy. All right. In 2018, for perpetuating our nation's time-honored lightkeeping heritage, the American Lighthouse Foundation presented Sally Snowman with a Keeper of the Light Award. After 20 years as Keeper, Sally recently announced her retirement, effective at the end of this month. Boston Light is in the process of being transferred to a suitable new steward, which most likely will be the National Park Service. The job of Boston Light Keeper is ending with Sally, meaning it's the end of 234 years of lighthouse keepers employed by the federal government. Sally's husband, Jay Thompson, is an avid sailor and the longtime engineer for the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Sally and Jay met during Coast Guard Auxiliary Training. On October 8, 1994, Jay and Sally were married at Boston Light. They went out to Little Brewster Island on a friend's 32-foot sailboat named True Love. I have a confession to make. Uh, the interview you're about to hear was recorded on the second try. The night before, I had a two-hour conversation with Sally and Jay on Zoom. The second it ended, 
and I mean literally the second we ended the call, I realized I hadn't recorded it. Oh no! Yeah, that's what I said. I said more than that, but I won't. I won't repeat what I said. We have a G rating. Yeah. Yes, we do. I have to be careful. I felt terrible. I felt sick over it. But when I emailed Sally about it, her reaction was, "Oh, that's so funny." <laughs> They were completely understanding. We did the interview over again the next night, and I, if anything, it was even better. Uh, it was good the first time, but it was, it was even better the second time. That shows you what nice people they are. Mm. They were so understanding about it. Uh, what you're about to hear is part one of two, so let's listen to part one now. I'm speaking with Sally Snowman and her husband, Jay Thompson. Sally is the 70th head keeper of the oldest light station in America, Boston Light, and also the only woman keeper in its more than 300 years of history. And Jay is, is the uh, the husband of the, the uh, 70th lighthouse keeper of Boston Light and uh, a member of the Coast Guard Auxiliary and has uh, done a lot for Boston Light in his own right as well. So thank you so much for joining me, uh, Sally and Jay. Thank you for inviting us. Sure. And before we start the conversation here, I just I have to mention something. Sally and Jay, if you have a sense of deja vu here, uh, I know I do. I think there's a good reason for that. We did uh, an interview last night on Zoom and we were on for quite a while. And then the second the call ended, I realized I didn't record it. So here we are again. And I can't thank you enough, both of you, for being so patient and being willing to do this again. Uh, not everybody would be so understanding. So so thank you so much. Our pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so let that be a lesson to anybody out there. If you're using Zoom to record an interview or an event or whatever it is, make sure you're recording. <laughs> you know, just look at the little little thing at the top of the screen that says recording. So with that out of the way, first of all, Sally, congratulations in your retirement. I'm sure this is a, a crazy time for you. Yes, um, it's amazingly crazy. I had no idea what it was to be coming off the federal government payroll. Um, it's been a very, it's been challenging on a number of levels. Uh huh. I know you've gotten a lot of media attention. I, I was uh, interviewed also for the stories from, in the Christian Science Monitor and uh, the New Yorker magazine, but there's been a lot of other stories as well. It's been kind of crazy. Yes, certainly yes, uh, yeah. and, and it's still coming. And, yeah, and a lot of them can't understand why we can't bring them out to the light. You know, <laughs> even if you could land on, on at the island right now, it's likely to be pretty pretty brutal, uh, brutally cold, possibly windy out there. So not a great time of year, as you well know. I know there's. Uh, I'll be uh, going to a retirement gathering for you in a couple of weeks in Boston at the Coast Guard Station. Thank you for uh, inviting me to that. I'm looking forward to it. I believe there's also going to be uh, another celebration in the spring. Is that right? Yes, in May. And it's going to be at the Hull Lifesaving Museum in the town of Hull, which mm -hmm. is directly across to Boston Light. So if you can't go out to the light, at least it's going to be the backdrop. Let me ask you. When you became keeper of Boston Light, it was uh, 20, 20 years ago, right? Almost exactly 20 years. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you imagine that you would be the keeper for 20 years? No, no. That's, and this is part of the whole story. Um, I jokingly say I got hired what I considered a temp job, that mm -hmm. it was only going to be for um, 18 months to two years. 
And then it was a three-year and the four-year and the five-year. And now it's at 20 years. It's like, where did those 20 years go? <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Lighthouse buffs know who you are. A lot of them have seen you on like Chronicle, the Boston TV show, and read about you and, and things like that. But And maybe heard you on the podcast before. I had you on about three years ago. But they might not know a whole lot about your background. You have a background in education. Uh, and uh, last night, we were talking about uh, some of that kind of unusual journey you've had in your lifetime. Uh, your career path uh, kind of took unexpected turns and so forth. But can you say a little bit about that, about your background before becoming Keeper of Boston Light? Sure. What I was doing before I went on payroll, uh, I was a college professor at Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and um, uh, teaching teachers how to teach. That was a passion for me because as a young child, I had a lot of um, learning issues that back in the 50s, they didn't have any understanding or any way to really help anyone. And so I was a nice girl and I got social promotions right through high school. I graduated from high school. I found out later when I was getting my doctorate in um, specializing in learning disabilities that in uh, the state of Massachusetts, for due to be literate, is for um, sixth grade reading level and up. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't even maybe reading on a fifth grade level. So I graduated from high school in 1969 with um, dismal reading skills. And I always wanted to be a teacher. I decided that when I was in kindergarten because kindergarten was so hard for me. All the other kids seemed to be grasping things. They were, you know, learning all these things. And I was behind the eight ball. Yeah. And it's like, wow. And because I was a nice girl and I was good and no disciplinary issues, they just let me be. So I, the time I graduated from high school, looking at my transcript, there were a lot of D minuses, Ds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so how do you move forward with something like that? And my mom always said, oh, you know, why don't you just marry a doctor or a lawyer and have kids and you're going to be a great mother. <laughs> and it's like, mm -hmm. really? Um, you know, I don't even know how to help myself right now. How can I help anybody else? So this is where my whole journey began. So once I um, got out of high school, well, when I was a high school, a senior, and all my friends were uh, applying for college, and um, I was the only one in my little group. And so I went to the guidance office and I said, is there anything here that isn't a two or four-year college? Is there any training for anything? And I went over and I found this pamphlet that said, it's a pediatric school, but it, was, it had another name to it. And what it was is um, being a professional babysitter or a, uh, or a nanny. And because of that, you didn't even have to have a high school diploma to be admitted into it. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's where it started. And the more that I learned about taking care of children, and that's what I wanted to be an early childhood education teacher, that once I graduated from there, I then went looking to see maybe what college or a program that I could take the next step. And the 
teaching colleges in the United States, they used to be called another name calling. Normal schools? Normal schools, yes. And yeah. the last one in the country was in Boston. Mm-hmm. So I just, because I was in Boston for the pediatric school, I walked over to the school, walked up the flight of stairs, knocked on the door and said, hi, you, what do you need to have for a background in order to apply as a student here? So when I told them my story, they let me in on a probation basis. So a year and a half into this, there was one teacher that understood me. And she literally tutored me in return, because I didn't have money. In return, I babysat her kids for her. Ah. <laughs> and um, so I got through a year and a half, and then the state of Massachusetts changed the law and said that in order to have a teacher's uh, certificate in the state of Massachusetts, you have to have a four-year college. So the school closed down. Mm-hmm. And when I went looking for, okay, what's my next step? And there was a, a two-year college opening up in the South Shore of Massachusetts, a Massasoit Community College. So I went knocking on their door one day and said, what do I need to, what's my background in order to apply here? They were not accredited yet, so they were taking anybody. So that was easy world for me. Because of the challenges that I was having, I just went part time. I didn't. Um, I went. I went to night school in summer. So mm-hmm. the time that I left the pediatric school into the normal school to Massachusetts Community College, then I went in to apply for Bridgewater College, um, Bridgewater State College, and they looked at my resume. Now what I have is I have some C's and a couple of B minuses somewhere along the line there. They took me in as well. But what happened, I failed miserably. So they told me that um, I wasn't college material and they let me go. However, anybody can take night schools. So I went night school. And I did this over a seven-year period. So I went to <laughs> mm-hmm. all year long until yeah. I got to Bridgewater. But mm-hmm. my resume was so, um, my transcript was so poor that I couldn't get a teaching job. So what happened with all of this is you can imagine, if you can imagine, that feeling you're always the odd person out. And this had some deep psychological issues for me. So as much as I persevered to go through all this, it was difficult. I would crash and burn. And then as I moved into being disappointed that I couldn't teach, what else am I going to do? I was doing temp jobs. And Mm -hmm. I had um, been on um, depression, suicidal tendencies. So I had been on medication since I was the age of 21. And so as I progressed and then got to Bridgewater State College, and now I wanted to get a master's degree. Mm -hmm. In Curry College, I went there for an interview to see if I was eligible to be a student to go to the master's program, despite my dismal undergraduate work. Well, when I told them my story, they ended up hiring me 
to work with the students at the school because Curry College was the first one in the United States for learning disabled ADD students. And because I fit that profile, they said, you know, you're a born teacher, you can help these students. So for a summer, I worked with the incoming freshman class, uh, getting them prepared. The, um, the college professors would do mock classes so they could go there and, and practice learning note-taking. So uh, what I was was just, um, I wasn't a tutor. I was a study skills specialist. So I didn't have to know anything about the subject, which is how to study, organize oneself and what have you. Um, and at the time I was working, <laughs> believe it or not, in the pharmacy department of a hospital as the secretary. The director had all these books on medications. So I started looking at my medications to see what I was taking. It was like, oh my goodness gracious, I have to get off this merry-go-round. So I, um, because I had a psychiatrist, I had a psychologist, and I talked to them about wanting to come off my meds. And I mm -hmm. said, no, no, if you do that, we're going to put you back in the psychiatric hospital. And I'm going, no. So I went for a, a second opinion um, at McLean's Hospital, because yep. that's what they do with psychiatric people. And they did me a whole bunch of tests, and they say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just you just have ADD in your learning. You have you're dyslexic. You know, so your brain's fine. You just have to know how to unravel it. Mm -hmm. So there was my there was my step in, and um, I went through the master's degree at Curry. Then they hired me, <laughs> and I went from the master's degree right into a doctorate program, and um, it was. Um, uh, on neurolinguistics, which is how the brain processes information. So I got that. And then I started teaching teachers how to teach and um, talking about different learning styles. Uh, I actually wrote two books because in, um, in the 80s, when uh, learning disabilities and ADD and hyperactivity and all that was coming out, it was all targeted to children. And I had a private practice on the side called the Snowman Learning Center, where I did psychoeducational assessments to determine the absence of presence of all of this and write up reports and go to um, the schools with the parents to see if they can get a um, an individual plan for them. Mm -hmm. The parents are saying, oh, my gosh, that's me. But all the books are out there about kids. So I started writing books about adults and how the adults could start unraveling their brains too. And so in the meantime, I had joined the auxiliary when I was 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And that was my saving piece because I, they just accepted me for what I, who I was. They didn't know that I, <laughs> my brain was messed up and the issues that I had with learning. I just worked at my own pace and um, so one of the first things I did after I joined was become an instructor teaching the auxiliaries how to teach because the way they were teaching was just reading the lines off the, um, um, overhead, the, the overhead projectors or the uh -huh. millimeter. Yep. Um, 
because the Coast Guard Auxiliary, they have a number of programs. One is they do public education. So that was the first thing I jumped into. The second thing that I jumped into was vessel examination where um, the boaters that are at launching ramps, yacht clubs, marinas, you walk up to them and say, hey, how would you like a free boating safety check to make sure you have the state and federal requirements? Because if you're out on your boat, any law enforcement vessel can do a spot check and make sure you have your life jackets and fire extinguisher if you need one on board. And um, so I did that big time. And um, then the third thing that I did is get into the communications program and became a watch stander down at uh, Coast Guard Station Point Alladin on weekends when it was really, mm-hmm. busy. they appreciated having another body in the watch standard program. Mm-hmm. So with all that, I was progressing into getting my doctorate degree. And then in auxiliary with my teachings, I tripped over Jay. <laughs> literally? Yeah, literally. Not, literally. Not, not quite tripping, but we, you know, I was smart enough to recognize teaching talent when it was available. And um You know, in the auxiliary, it's the volunteer branch of the Coast Guard. And basically, the auxiliary does all of boating safety. The Coast Guard doesn't deal directly in boating safety. Mm -hmm. And so it's a a part-time job with no pay. So you really have to be dedicated to it and and put yourself into it. So it was easy to see that Sally was putting herself into it. And uh, she, she knew her. She might have had difficulty at times getting stuff across, but she she did so much pre- preparation work beforehand that you didn't notice that she struggled mm-hmm. as much as she did. Yeah. So um, with the auxiliary, uh, when I was crashing and burning, you know, they they didn't know about that stuff. That was all in the background, and I would just keep being this little everybody battery bunny. I would just keep on going, keep on going, put the smile on my face, go out and do my shtick, and then go home and have a meltdown and get up the next morning and start all over. So when Jay and I met, um, my dad had been in the auxiliary for eons, and I didn't figure it out until later in my auxiliary career. He joined the same age. He was 24, and I was 24 serendipitousness of that. And so my dad and I would be patrolling together on the family boat. Jay was down in Plymouth and his sailboat was an operational facility. And what that means is we go out on our boats, we offer it to the Coast Guard, we get the uh, signboards that say U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary Official Patrol. <laughs> and we are another set of eyes and ears out there. So Jay mm-hmm. and I started taking turns. Um, I'd go down to Plymouth, crew on his boat, then he'd come up to Weymouth, crew on our boat. So as the summer was progressing, it was now August 1993, we're just tooling by Boston Light. And I said to Jay, I've always wanted to get married at Boston Light. And Jay said, let me know when. A year later, August 1994, I said to Jay, is the offer still opened? Yes. (laughs) And that was it. We got married out there in October. And I need to roll back a bit here and talk a little bit about my dad. Yeah. My dad in the auxiliary, and he was far up on the food chain. 
And he arranged for the auxiliary to have a rendezvous out there. So the so we weren't on a patrol that day. We would just be using our boat as a private entity. This is back in the early 60s, right? Uh, this was uh, 1961. So we'd anchor the boat. So the, all the boats were there anchored, and they'd have their dinghy, and they'd roll on to the beach. So when we went in, and I stepped on the beach, I looked up at the tower and said, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to get married here. And I keep on saying to Jay, my first love was Boston Light. I'm really sorry, dear. <laughs> um, and it just to have um, be dreaming about, oh, what's it like to be the light keeper? And what was it like to be the keeper out there? And yeah. to find out that, you know, in another, how many years it comes to <laughs> So, I mean, here we here I was 10 years old, seeding, you know, this this wish and then also have that wish to be a keeper. I can't tell you how blessed I am, especially when I had this horrendous background of, you know, do I want to be on this planet or not? Do I want to do away with myself or not? And then all of a sudden I come up to the island and I have this. Uh, an automatic spiritual connection with it. And we know a lot about the lighthouses, that the light at the top of the tower has many different meanings for a no, you know, many, many different people. And a lot of that is it's hope. It's hope. It's the light. Go to the light. And sounds like a soap opera. Yes. <laughs> So that's what I did. I'm a spiritual person, and I think that's why I'm sitting here, uh, you know, 72 years later, telling my story. (laughs) It's an amazing story. I I love uh, listening to it. And thank you for sharing all that, Sally. I I think our listeners will appreciate it. We all have challenges in our lives. There's no doubt about that. And uh, kids need to know that if they don't do well in school because of things like that, that doesn't mean they're not smart. It doesn't mean they're not capable of all kinds of great things in their lives. So you're a good good example of persevering. I know you said it was difficult at times to make it through all that, but you did persevere and look what happened. So anyway, thank you for sharing all that. And it also makes me wonder, you and Jay wrote a book on the history of Boston Light, Boston Light, a historical perspective. And you also did a Images of America book on Boston Light. You also wrote a children's book about Sammy the Lighthouse Dog. But I'm just wondering, are you uh, thinking of possibly writing your own life story, which I think uh, people would find really interesting? Um, Right now, I'm thinking of memoirs about how the involvement with Boston Light came into being, Mm -hmm. uh, with Coast Guard Auxiliary, with um, the Watchstander Program and the Interpreter Program and the managing of all of that, as well as being facilities manager. There's so many components to all of this. So how we got involved with Boston Light, not only did we get married out there, but then after that happened, that was in October, a few weeks later, we went out and we did a watch. We were um, another set of bodies on the island. There were three active duty personnel at the time. There were two on duty and one was off. And they would rotate through the cycle for one week. And so the two people would be on board. One would leave. The one that was off would come on board. And so the they would do that. So rotation. if you play your mask skills, you realize that 
if somebody got sick, wanted to take leave or training, they were they were shorthanded. And that's what the auxiliary is. One of the things we do is we support the active duty. And so it didn't take long before they realized that uh, it made sense to take and have a volunteer out there for safety reasons. So there'd be two people on the island. And mm -hmm. Sally, you relate how you first learned of that with your dad. Oh, yeah. When I, when I was a kid, uh, and so that with the two active duty on the island and for one to go off for the night, um, and auxiliaries would go and stay overnight. And my dad would do that. And my mm -hmm. mom would take a brown paper bag, you know, the lunch bags, and make six cheese sandwiches on that soft white bread and the, and the one on the cellophane wrapped like in the craft, cheese. Probably craft uh, those bright yeah. yellow slices of cheese, yeah. So uh, my dad would go off on Saturday morning, and he'd come back on Sunday morning. So when I joined the auxiliary, you know, I says to dad, um, you know, does that still happen? And he says, yes. So I asked if I could go and I was the wrong gender. So no. But once I got married and so we went out together to do the watch, there was no impropriety with that. So once I did that, it opened the door for more of that to happen. And that was in 1994. In 1996, the Boston Harbor Islands National State Park was established, and there's 34 islands and peninsulas. Little Brewster Island is one of them. Under this from congressional law, even though it was owned by the military, it was to work with the Park Service to have um, at least some sort of minimal visitation possibilities during the summertime. Public access. Yeah, for public access. And yeah. so it took a while to get the um, the park up and running. And in 1999, the Park Service was ready and working with the Coast Guard to do a pilot program to see what it would be like to bring visitors out there. And so the rangers wanted to, needed to be trained. So the Park Service asked the Coast Guard, what's the quickest way to get history of Boston Light? Because, of course, it's like April and the summer's coming. And they said, well, you know, contact Sally. <laughs> she and her husband's writing a book and um, see if they can help you. So they contacted us and we gave them drafts of what we had. And it turned out that they came back to me because in talking to the Coast Guard and what have you, they wanted to put a, a training manual together. And Coast Guard said, talk to Sally. So they said, hey, the Coast Guard said to talk to you about coming up with a training manual. And I said, yes, I'm a college professor teaching teachers how to teach, and I teach curriculum development, and I love writing curriculum. I'd be more than happy to write something up and then edit it to your liking. During the summer, I was starting to develop that as we were doing these, giving the tours, getting a sense of how yeah. they were going to come together. So at the end of the year, at the end of the summer, we had a meeting with um, myself and the active um, Coast Guard side and the Park Service and talking about, okay, we need volunteers. It's not enough just to have the Rangers. 
And the auxiliary, we could draw from there. And there's also an organization called the Friends of Boston Harbor Islands. And they started bringing tours out there um, with permission from the Coast Guard just three times during the summer. So at least there had been some experience of having visitors going out there. Yeah. So um, it was the right thing to do to invite them in on this training as well. Now, the Park Service, they cannot do any fundraising. Uh, they can't sell tickets or, you know, for going out to Boston Light. And they had a, a not-for-profit organization. It started out as Island Alliance, and it's now Boston Harbor Now. So now we're working with Boston Harbor Now. Yeah. And then they needed a boat to bring the visitors out to the island. And they went to UMass Boston, University of Massachusetts, because they had a research boat that could also bring um, passengers out to Boston Light. So they came into the mix. Mm-hmm. So as an auxiliarist uh, overseeing the tours on the island, I was the kinping in the middle with Park Service, Austin Harbor Now, Sector Boston Coast Guard, the Auxiliary, Friends of Boston Harbor Islands, and UMass Boston. Mm-hmm. And just coordinating all of that and uh, doing the training, doing the recruiting, the training, the scheduling, and then for the next years, the next year, just continually doing that. that so, I was doing all of that as a volunteer. So in Sally's style, we'd have the meeting at the beginning of the season, and for people to sign up, she'd have this 24 by 30 calendar, and people would write in in pencil when they wanted to to go out there. So that was very much a Sally style, and that's the way it went. Mm-hmm. And then because of the the time and space that we were in, the Coast Guard started thinking about using the Coast Guard Auxiliary and training them. So the Coast Guard said, Sally, could you put a training manual together? Because the active duty out there, they didn't have, it was on-the-job training, and they just had a three-page checklist of once they had proficiency in something, they'd just check it off. But there was Mm -hmm. no handbook. There was nothing in writing. And so I was asked to write the manual for that, too. And um, that manual is uh, a three-inch binder. (laughs) We went out there a lot, but typically we'd go out there on New Year's because Sally's mother would never hear of us going out there on Thanksgiving or Christmas. And our dear friends, uh, Jim and Colleen, they would make it a point to be out there on Thanksgiving and Christmas so that the active duty could enjoy the holidays. That all came because of the Watchstander program. Mm-hmm. So those things came into being. Uh, we went full blown in 2000, and then what happened in 2001? We had 9/11, and um, the Twin Towers collapsed, and the Coast Guard removed the three active duty off the island, and. The light was automated at the time. The, uh, the, uh, the light was automated in 1998. So it really didn't need to have people on the island except for a congressional mandate at that time. And so when they left, 
uh, they were gone for a while. And a few days after 9-11, the Park Service wanted to go into the new norm. And they were given permission to start opening the parks that were not right next door to a military installation. We were eight miles away from Boston, so there was no issue with that. And they wanted to um, resume the tours. So the Coast Guard said, Sally, you've got some, you've got watchstanders and what have you. Can you get the island opened so that we can do off snow up there? And mm-hmm. we did that for 10 days. And so the Coast Guard thought, hey, wait a minute. What if we were to make this position as the billion keeper and then have the auxiliary as the watchstanders supporting that keeper? That had to get approved. Uh, all that had, had to be approved. Initially, what they were talking about in 1999 and 2000 is having a principal keeper, uh, uh, an active duty one, and then having uh, the auxiliary. After 9-11, they switched that more to a civilian. So the Coast Guard, in case you don't know, there's four components. There's the active duty, reserves, civilian, uh, that's me, no law enforcement, no uniform, and then there's the Coast Guard Auxiliary. So with that, having removing the active duty and having that civilian keeper, it changed how things were going to be run out there. Because, and this, this was a step toward um, what we would be talking about next is the stewards trips transfer. It was a step toward that. So then it took um, about a year and a half for the Coast Guard to go down to Congress and say, we would like to civilianize this position and the rationale behind that. And that got approved. They did a national search at the last minute. I threw my hat in and um, I'm the one that got the job, which was supposed to be for 18 months for two years. So I took a leave of absence from College because I'd been there for 17 years, I could take up to four years leave of absence, which was very generous of them. So what happened is at the last minute, the park service that was going to be taking over the island, it fell through. And that's how I I call myself probably the longest federal temp person. to anticipating that this job was going to end every year, wondering what was going to be happening next. And here we are 20 years later with the stewardship transfer. There is um, flutter activity. There is movement being made, but it's not done yet. And for me personally, it would have been to me, it would have been a nice package. If tied things up neatly, if it was done. Uh, for Sally retired. But. Yeah, for me to retire. And then this position that I'm in is is gone. The keeper position is going to be gone when I leave on the 31st of December. Right. And then if it had been a transfer, that would have been a nice little package, but it isn't. And so what's going to be happening is the when I leave, there will be an announcement somewhere along the way, that Boston Light is no longer being manned. And there's going to be an outcry about that going, oh, this congressional policy that it has to remain manned. Well, the Coast Guard went to Congress and they sat down and talked Turkey, and it makes sense to 
has it go into this, um, the, the Lighthouse Preservation Act has the whole process of transferring it and for Boston Light to be put in the queue for that. Mm-hmm. So it's going to get proper care. The Coast Guard is for saving lives and protecting the whales and the porpoises. and But to maintain a national landmark and a land site with nowhere in their mission statement yeah it's 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 not you you can't imagine it into their mission statement it's really out there yeah nothing nothing about historic preservation and interpretation any of that stuff yeah right and so when uh they did a major restoration in 2014 Mm-hmm. In preparation for our 300th anniversary in 2016, the contractor that got that had to go and give samples of paint colors. And there was a copper uh, gutter that was being replaced, and they had to give them a sample of, you know, what the thickness of that was. And mm-hmm. so that is something where the Coast Guard, they don't have training. They don't have a training center to, to send Coast Guard people to maintain um, the, the structures out there. In fact, it was- it was funny when we were doing the restoration, there were there were some faux pas that were made when they were just trying to keep the place up and going that the contractor said like, oh, what, what's this aluminum under the copper gutters? <laughs> um, yeah. And for the, the island of the property be transferred to an entity that knows how to maintain it and to honor it. And the Coast Guard will continue uh, maintaining the light at the top of the tower and the fog signal. So there is still going to be that, that Coast Guard presence there. And the Coast Guard is one of the partners in the Boston Harbor Islands National State Park because they are also for port security. The captain of the port is at Sector Boston. Mm-hmm. So just because the, the property is no, no longer going to be with the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard is the 911 in the harbor. If there's any injuries or situation on any of the islands or on the water or in the water, you don't call 911, you call Sector Boston. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they they have in their command center, they know where all of the assets in the harbor are so they can choose the, the appropriate one for the situation. So just to bring closure to to this piece here, that for 20 years, this has been an ongoing piece of transferring Boston Light. And it wasn't until we had uh, severe storms back to back in 2018, uh, in um, January, February, March. And uh, that was a year that that was my last year that I lived out there, five and a half they months out of the year. They can't see it, but there's your hanky. Uh-huh. I've seen that from boats going by a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> people might know that you, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but maybe we can touch on that in a, in a few minutes. But yeah. yeah, we'll get back to that. What happened is in September, the Coast Guard sent out um, a team to assess the island and, I mean, everything. And we didn't have any tours in 2018 because there was a lot of uh, storm damage that needed to be mitigated for it to be safe for the 
visitors to even walk around the island. I mean, there was uh, there was debris everywhere. Um, One of the ramps got destroyed, and they had to come out and rebuild that ramp. So uh, it was totally. It was it was tough for us, but it, it certainly was not accessible to the public. So yeah. once that report came out in uh, early 2019, it said that the house, w- uh, the pro- the buildings were not up to code, and that you know nobody should be living out there until it gets up to code. Mm-hmm. So 2018 was the last time I uh, was manning the island. One of one of the things we've realized over the years is is um, risk management keeps cranking up and cranking up and cranking up. So the report may have been very similar to one done a number of years ago, but with today's standards, that was definitely a no-go. Mm-hmm. And so in 2019, that's when Sector Boston started um, being a little bit more assertive mm-hmm. about the stewardship transfer to start being um, moving forward with that. So they went down to Congress and to explain the situation to them, letting them know that being, um, you know, a manned island anymore is it's just not reasonable. So it does not have to be manned anymore. Yeah, or woman. Or woman. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so that's like taking the hanky out for that. So whoever gets the island, and the process for that, for those who may not be familiar with it, is called the National Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000. And um, what that done had done is created the way to move the lighthouses that were no longer manned because Boston Light was the last manned one Mm -hmm. to find entities that could take care of them. So the way that the law works is that it first is offered to a federal agency. And if there's no federal agency that doesn't want it, it then gets um, offered up to the state for which the lighthouse resides in. If the state doesn't want it, it then reaches out to a municipality, such a town, and there's no takers there. It then goes to a 501c3 process for non-for-profits, and the not-for-profit does not have to exist yet. If they want to create one for that, they can move forward with it, or if one already exists, they can plug it into that. And it's an, an enormous Endeavor, yes, to do that, but it's been very, very successful. There's been approximately 150 lighthouses transferred, and the last I heard, they had only taken, the federal government had only taken two back because they were not being properly maintained. And Mm -hmm. that was through, um, so when there's a transfer to a lighthouse, there's three agencies up on the high level on the national level is um, the GSA, the General Services Services Administration, administration, because they own all the federal government in in the country anyway, all the property. And then because the lighthouses are with the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard is a partner in that. And then because the Park Service, the National Park Service, they're, they're responsible for all the landmarks and land places 
in the United States. Yeah. So that's the three team that work together on this. So one of the things that gets convoluted with the Boston Harbor Islands National and State Park was it was just assumed that the Boston Harbor National and State Park would want it as if they wanted it in 2004. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is that there's still, it is a waiting point here because you're waiting for um, all the federal agencies to say yay or nay, and then it goes to the state. Well, it's still sitting on this federal level. Yeah. And so someone says no. Yeah. Just imagining the imagining the Jeopardy theme playing while they're you know we're waiting for them to yeah. make the decision you know <laughs> da 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 you know I, there's no deadline I guess um, yeah. for that decision. Well, it was supposed to be, but because of COVID, mm-hmm. they just let it slide and slide and slide. And you know what happens when things slide? It takes even more to get back up to speed to get back on the page to you know do what needs to get done. So. Mm-hmm. I do know that there's movement toward a stewardship transfer at this time. And um, I don't want to know it because I do so much media stuff and it should not be coming out of my mouth. It should be coming out of, you know, headquarters or, you know, some higher up there. So when I hear people start talking about that, I cover my ears and go, la, 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 la. I don't want to. Yeah. Well, it seems to make such logical sense for it to become part of the the park, the National Park. And you're right about the Coast Guard not having the inclination or the wherewithal or the, you know, it's not part of their mission. And the Coast Guard more than ever is stretched pretty thin these days, financially and personnel wise. So I think it just makes complete sense. And I, you know, I know that you've kind of advocated for for this happening. And uh, I think that's the the right way to look at it. And by the way, I just want to say that that one of the things I I like about doing the podcast is um, it goes beyond uh, you know just people listening week by week and everything. This be, this is oral history, so I appreciate the fact that you've gone through so much history of what's happened with Boston Light and your personal history. 50 years from now, if somebody's researching the history of Boston Light and the life of Sally Snowman. I hope they listen to this and they'll get a lot of information from it. So I think it's great to cover this ground. For those who saw the Zoom session with Dan May, Rear Admiral Dan May retired, he was the one that hired me in 2003. Yep. So interesting that, you know, it goes around, comes around. And in the book that has just recently been released that he wrote one of the chapters on Boston Light, and I think is one of the best yep. chapters in the book. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think we have a we have a lot of friends in common. I know that's the case. And you and I, Sally, go back to the 80s, the late 80s, when I was helping with some of those tours that Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands were running out there. And uh, you were on the auxiliary out there. Uh, I have a picture I took of you on the dock with a few other auxiliary people waving to the boat as we as we left. So I treasure that. And uh, I was lucky enough to be involved with the publication of Dan May's book that's just come out. Uh, so um, it's great to learn the background, you know, from his point of view. And uh, yeah, he's he's a great guy. Done a lot of good work. And going back to the the 80s, uh, you know, I, I knew Dennis Dever pretty well. I was the keeper there for a couple of years in the late 80s. We talk about Dennis being the first last keeper because right. in 
and they were talking about <laughs> unmanning all of the stations and you know they had it on the docket that he was going to be the last and yep there were a lot of news newspaper articles calling him the last America's last lighthouse keeper. And I think he enjoyed that that role. He loved he loved it out there. I know he really did. Yeah, um, it was it was interesting. Those stationed out there, they it was one way or the other. They either loved it or they hated it. You know, it's like it's like Moxie the the tonic. You either love it or you hate it. <laughs> I hate it. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. In fact, at the same time, Dennis was out there. There was a, an, another uh, Coast Guardsman, you know, beneath, below him. I think he didn't like it at all. Yeah, he, uh, he didn't enjoy any of it. He would, he would, he told me he for fun he would drop water balloons off the top of the lighthouse <laughs> onto the ground. <laughs> so that's how bored he was. Although it's out of print, you can probably find a copy of Sally and Jay's book, Boston Light, A Historical Perspective, on Amazon. Their Images of America book on Boston Light is available from online booksellers. Sally and Jay were first on the podcast back in 2019. We covered a lot of ground in that interview, but we covered uh, some new ground in this one. I knew a bit about Sally's background before she was keeper of Boston Light, but a lot came out in this interview that I didn't know about. To say she's had an interesting life is an understatement, I'd say. <laughs> Part two of the interview with Sally Snowman and Jay Thompson will be heard in next week's episode of Lighthearted. Be sure to check out uslhs.org to learn about tours, the passport program, and all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. And if you listen to us using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. I was looking at my Google News Feed the other day and something caught my eye. Uh, there was a New Hampshire state representative named Robin, his name is V-O-G-T, I believe it might be pronounced Voight or maybe Vote. I'm not quite sure, but uh, Robin uh, represented a ward near where I live here in New Hampshire. He was moving to another town and had to resign as a state rep. He ended his resignation statement with a sentence I love. I'll let you read the sentence, Cindy. I'd be glad to. Quote, let the beacon of every lighthouse shine brightly upon the future, unquote. <laughs> How perfect is that? It is. <laughs> I think we might need to steal it as a slogan <laughs> and trademark it so nobody else steals it. Right. With uh, that, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. <laughs>